Hi, I'm Jessie, and you're listening to Red Cloaks Radio. Today is July 3rd. We have an exciting guest today with us and a wonderful team of hosts. Hi, my name is Martha, and I'm from Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, I'm Laura. I'm from the Boston Red Cloaks as well, and I'm representing Advocates for Women's Empowerment, too. Hi, I'm from Boston Red Cloaks. I'm Kate uh, from Concord Indivisible. Hi, my name is Linda. I'm from Indivisible Acton, and I have the honor to introduce my wonderful state representative, Tammy Govea. Hi, everybody. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. We know that this is your first term is ending, and we're learning a lot in advocating for the ROE Act. So we would love to talk to you and get a little bit more of a global perspective over what the legislative process is like. And, you know, you're seeing it from the inside as someone who is committed to taking care of families and prioritizing things that we care about quite a bit. So we're hoping to spend time this morning getting your perspective. Are there things just generally, without any specific legislation, that have struck you? as a first-time person that we should know about? Yeah, there are several uh, things that jump out at me right away. First of all, there are a lot of unwritten rules. And they're really, uh, when I started, uh, it takes a while to learn the ropes as an insider. I had been a lobbyist against the tobacco industry for a number of years, an activist advocating on policies that I care about up at the State House for a good 15, 20 years. And it is very different being on the inside as a, as a legislator and also really experiencing the power dynamics um, as a new member, as a female rep, um, as you know, someone who doesn't come from a family that has strong political connections or a strong political background. I am the first person to ever want to run for office in my family and to go out there and do it a lot of, in a lot of ways. My parents thought I was a little crazy for wanting to do this. Why do you want to put yourself out there? Why do you want to you know, work so hard and be out in the public eye? Um, and so not having some of those political connections coming into the building, I think, is also an interesting dynamic compared to some of the folks who have long historical uh, connections to political machines throughout the state. Well, I can really see that just as someone who's been following this particular row act back from last January, even understanding the 18 month cycle is something that is, it's different than the way our local cities and towns work. So I guess I'm wondering, what is that like for you following legislation that comes out one year and a lot of it won't be acted on for more than a year? I think because I had been a lobbyist, that wasn't anything that was brand new to me. And I studied politics in undergrad. I'm working on a doctorate in public health and have taken a couple public health law and policy classes. And so just have an awareness of how our system is similar and different from other um, states across the country. But you make a really good point that, you know, this whole 18 month cycle can be really confusing for people. Even in the beginning of the session, it's really confusing between the ways that the House and the Senate operate differently. So just to paint a picture for people who are listening, in the first couple weeks of session, we are frantically working on and filing legislation. We have two weeks to file legislation in the House and then only two weeks to sign on as a co-sponsor. That's very different in the Senate. In the Senate, they can um, sign on as co-sponsors um, up until the bill is heard on the House floor, on the Senate floor. So it's just a slightly different um, process and, and focus. So there's a big frenzy in the beginning of a session um, to get people sign on as a co-sponsor. So I say all of that because if your state rep uh, is not signed on as a co-sponsor of the ROE Act or other policies and bills that you care about and they're on the House side, 
It just might be that they didn't have time to sift through 6,000 bills uh, and get their name attached to a particular piece of legislation. It doesn't mean that they don't necessarily support the elements that are included in there. So don't dismay, reach out to them and have a conversation with them to see maybe they do support, maybe they can sign on to a Senate version that's the same exact language and then you'll get a sense that yes, they do care about this particular issue. 6,000, wow, yeah, 6,000? <laughs> 6,000 on average every single session. And, um, you know, a lot of those end up being um, uh, like home rule petitions and, and alcohol changes and licensing kinds of things. Um, we typically don't take up late file bills, but this year we have a slew of late file bills because of coronavirus and the response to the pandemic. Um, so that's throwing a frenzy and a, a whole sort of wrench into things that we can get into the details more of in a little bit, but just again, so for folks who are listening, on average, 6,000 bills get filed every year, only about 2% pass within a um, given session. For, for people who are um, newer to the process, it seems like understanding those nuts and bolts is important. Well, the other thing I think is confusing is how the Judiciary Committee works, because um, in, in the case of the Roe Act, there was a hearing last June and it's been sitting with the Judiciary Committee. So again, not specifically on the Roe Act, but in general, what is that process like for you having certain things referred to committees? Are you able to impact what happens in the committee or do you just have to wait for them to get report out? So it's a, it's a little bit of a combination. I am a member of four different committees. Um, I would say that's pretty average for newer folks uh, in the house that we sit on three to four different committees. As you move up and you get a uh, committee chair or vice chair positions you don't necessarily uh, sit on as as many committees just given workload um, so bills get referred to a committee by the clerk the clerk decides which bill is probably the most appropriate for the which committee it goes to um, so sometimes there is a house version of a bill and a senate version and the senate clerk decides to send the same bill with the same language to a different committee and so that kind of creates some confusion down the line that's not the case for the Roe act it's not the case for the vast majority of the bills that are filed but it is an interesting nuance and thing to kind of keep note of that there may be a bill that you care about that is in two different committees and that creates a, you know, you just have to then go and testify before two different committees, pay attention to when the hearing is for those two different committees and submit your testimony uh, to two different committees. For the Roe Act specifically, um, you know, let me just say this about committees in general too. Not all committees um, publish or release uh, testimony that's provided before them. It's up to the committee to decide what their rules are. So that's also um, an interesting sort of thing that gets negotiated at the beginning of each session um, between the House Chair and the Senate Chair of Joint Committees. Um, and so sometimes you can easily get access to what people said in their testimony and what, and, and sometimes you can't get access to that. So that's an also an, another important um, point. I'm one of the few reps who publishes uh, my committee votes online. So that's the other thing that you can't easily get access to is how committee members voted on a particular piece of legislation that's getting perhaps reported out of committee or sent to study um, or is just getting a flat out no killing the bill kind of a thing. Um, in the judiciary, I, I'm not as familiar with how they operate. I'm not on that particular committee. I did testify in support of Roe, provided written testimony. I will say with judiciary, I think they got 
it was either 700 or 900 independent pieces of legislation. So they had a ton of work to do and a ton of um, bills to work through. On the House side, the chair is Claire Cronin, and she has been meeting with literally every single state representative uh, to get a sense of what within the Roe Act do we care about? Are there places for negotiating? And I, I was very clear, nothing is negotiable as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think some of our colleagues who come from uh, Catholic and religious backgrounds are feeling uh, or strong, have strong opinions about parenting, um, get caught up on uh, and tripped up by the parental consent component. Early on in the session, we were hearing a lot more about, um, uh, you know, allowing abortions later, late in term for fetal um, issues. And, but it seems like now it's the parental consent that's kind of tripping people up. And I went to Catholic school for 12 years. I grew up in a, in a community that I would say is um, very working class, middle class. And I've had conversations with the Speaker of the House. I had conversations with Chair Cronin around just what it meant for me having grown up in this way, some of the arguments that I hear, and ways to really debunk a lot of the, the myths and the things that we're hearing. Tammy, do you, do you think that, um, that, that more education needs to be put on different pieces of the Roe Act? You, you say that, like, um, you know, it's maybe the parental consent piece that's tripping people up or legislators up and maybe because they're they're hearing a lot. Do, should we be telling people to call in with testimonials or, or you know, different experiences to try and educate legislators? I think so. I also um, have heard from a number of um, abortion rights and reproductive justice rights advocates that Oftentimes when they're meeting with male colleagues, male co my male colleagues don't really fully understand how all of this works. So there are, I think, some myths to debunk as it relates to coming from a place of ignorance of not really understanding how women's bodies work, how pregnancy really works, how abortion really works. And so I'm wondering if perhaps, you know, we're all women on this call, if there are men who can, maybe male doctors, maybe men who are reproductive rights um, advocates, they could go and have conversations with male colleagues about how things really work because there is a disconnect that I'm hearing. I'm not hearing it specifically in conversations I'm having with colleagues, but I'm having it, it it's gotten reported back to me um, from, some, from some of the advocates that this is an area that is a disconnect and is a place for um, perhaps enhanced education and outreach. So you were saying about religion, that it has to do with the it influences the decisions so how how big of an impact is that i think in some of the new england states it's a it's a pretty big impact i hear about it also happening in other states like rhode island um, where the archdiocese is a very strong um, influential component um, i don't have firsthand knowledge how it works in our state these are just uh, signals that people have given or things that people have said to me about years past when it comes to reproductive justice and, you know, just going back to the 70s when, you know, some of the bills that were passed in the 70s um, in the state legislature and it seemed to be a lot driven by um, religious perspectives. So I think there's a, there's sort of a continued holdover in a lot of that. Um, 
And, you know, I know that uh, Catholics for Choice has done some education, has done some work uh, with my colleagues and with members of the House and probably even on the Senate side as well. I think that's another thing, another factor to explore is having people of various religious backgrounds talk about what does it really mean for equal rights and for um, being able to raise healthy children in this state uh, to make sure that families have access to the reproductive health care that they deserve and that they need. And it really is a justice issue when it comes to our black and our brown girls, very candidly. There's no much separation between government and religion in this country then. Or how does that work? I would, I... (laughs) I think you're right about that. I, I, you know, when I see that, one of the things that surprises me is seeing um, that people in the state house can get their ashes on Ash Wednesday in the state house. That is a big deal to me as someone who grew up Catholic and seeing a religious activity taking place on state house grounds. Um, So I do think that the influence and the connection with religion is, is pretty strong. And it's not to be ignored. And it ties into a lot of power dynamics. It ties into white supremacy, right? And all the things that we're talking about when it comes to protecting black and brown bodies in our state, not just with regards to police brutality, but who really has access to the healthcare that they need and they deserve. Look at what's happening with COVID. It's the same kind of idea. It gets played out over and over and over again. And we have the longest operating legislature in the country. So, you know, the systems that were in place and that were really getting uh, uh, catalyzed back, you know, hundreds of years ago are still playing themselves out. It's, it's not easy to disrupt, you know, the status quo and to change um, power dynamics. And so I think we're seeing a lot, I see a lot of interconnections between those, just given the fact that I did grow up in the Catholic culture, as I said, for, for 12 years. So I have deep familiarity of what that looks like and what that, how that plays out. I know that your heart and your training is in public health. Um, So what's your perspective on how passage of the Roe Act would impact public health? Oh, it would be huge. It would be, it would be so huge Um, because, you know, we're talking about access to healthcare and we're talking about who has the rights to make choices about their bodies. And I just thinking about all of the people who are running around saying my body, my choice, because they don't want to wear a mask. Like, okay, but women also were the ones who, um, if we choose, carry a fetus and bring it and birth it into life, um, in, whether it's C-section or vaginally, we're the ones who do that. And then society says that we're the ones who are then the caretakers. And so we're, for people who, for women who do not want to have children, that is a huge burden that plays and has ramifications for years and years and years. We're not just talking an inconvenience of wearing a mask. We're talking about taking responsibility for raising somebody into adulthood and putting folks out into the world who are you know, able to be contributing members of society. And what I see happen over and over again is that we don't make the investments in our families. We don't have good childcare. We don't have equitable education. We don't have single payer healthcare. We have an opioid crisis. And all of these things intersect with reproductive justice and it intersects with who has 
proper access to you know public health and who doesn't and that's part of this conversation i think so i hope i answered your question with that one kate <laughs> yes you did but i just have to throw in this quick anecdote something i read on social media yesterday that that was great there was a woman who said for all you folks who can't bear to put on a mask i just labored and delivered wearing a mask okay so you yeah. just do it <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right about the, the lack of understanding, which does go to a whole different topic, which is sexual health education, because people probably use religious arguments about why they don't want schools to talk about fundamental hygiene and health. Budget cuts didn't help when we have had rounds of school nurses cut or health educators cut. So it's, it's like we're not educating people and then they grow up and then they don't understand how bodies work and they're making policies in a way that isn't going to actually support public health. One thing I'm wondering is with the judicial bypass, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about it because my understanding right now is what judges are asked to do when a teen can't get consent from a parent, maybe their parent's not available, maybe their parent is abusive towards them, a parent even could have raped them. So when that teen can't get permission for an abortion from their parent, they in Massachusetts are then required to go in front of a judge instead of a doctor. And my understanding is that the judge asks, is this person mature enough to make the decision to have an abortion? Not, is this person mature enough to become a parent, or does this person have the resources, or can they afford to, to go through a pregnancy? And I'm, I'm curious if you can speak to that current aspect of our law. Yeah, that's, that's uh, interesting. I think how I would answer that is it, it just speaks volumes about gender roles in society. And the fact that we pres girls do not need to get their parents' permission to carry a fetus to term, right? They do not need parental permission to, to have that child and to raise that child. And so it's fascinating that to, to the point that you're making right now, um, that it, we have it reversed in, in, in the way that the judicial system is working. Um, where I thought you were going to go with your question is there are so few cases where the judges say no. And judges can, they're part for our black and brown girls in particular who might be in DCF custody, who might be in foster care, who might have family members who have had interactions with police and the criminal justice system. Going before the judge is incredibly traumatizing. They're probably already scared and have very complicated feelings about becoming pregnant in the first place at such a young age, right? And then here we are creating this barrier um, that they have to go before a judge to get medical care, essentially, is what we've done here. When so few judges and so few instances, I think there's fewer than a handful where the judge has said, where the judge has said, has said no. So it's a complete waste of time and it's completely inefficient. So for, you know, folks who are Republican or more conservative who like efficiency and good use of resources, this is not a good use of anybody's time or resources. It also means that if you can't get in to see a judge soon enough, then you're getting a more invasive procedure once that decision, which is like 99% of the time and like the history of uh, judicial bypass, um, you're having to get a much more invasive um, surgery than being able to take um, a pill um, if you could get that get access and, and get it right from your doctor right when you find out that you're pregnant. Well, and the irony is this week Florida just passed for the first time uh, the same kind of law requiring parental consent. So 
they're now catching up. They had that law and it was actually ruled unconstitutional by the Florida Supreme Court years ago, but they've packed the court. And so now they're bringing the law out again to see if it'll go forward. So that just kind of brings us to one last topic before we wrap up and we could talk a long time. You're very helpful um, in explaining how things really work. And we have so many more questions. We'll have to ask you to come back. Vision from the Supreme Court this week. And so we need to know, you know, your take on it because for some people they're like, oh, see, okay. So that decision came out and they struck down the Louisiana law. And so we can kind of celebrate. And I'm wondering if you are feeling that way or how you see it as someone who's got our lives in your hands as a legislator here in Massachusetts? I think there's reason to celebrate, but I don't think we should rest on our laurels at all. We have a ways to go to really fully achieve um, the kind of equity and justice that everybody in our state deserves with it, regardless of, you know, uh, race, gender, class, religion, sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, so I think that while some of these um, decisions that are coming out of the Supreme Court are um, in the right direction and are positive decisions, um, you know, the, the ones around trans transgender rights and LGBTQ rights are also really promising. But again, we can't rest on our laurels um, and say, okay, it's all solved and we can just all go home. We still need to be working really hard at the state levels. And, and the one other thing I'll say, is this is like the nerdy side of me coming out a little bit here but states are the laboratories for testing ideas and innovations that then get spread around the whole country right like that's what alec does right they they go out and they have these um they have these uh, test cases of rolling back people's rights and they start at the state level and then soon enough they pack the courts like you said and then continue to get um, bad policies passed that really impact people's lives and their ability to uh, live freely in our society. And so I, I sort of see it in the same vein that we need to be doing the same things in our state, pushing progressive policies, making sure that we have justice so that then we can really continue to replicate that and undo some of the harm, real detrimental harm that's been done by some of these policies at the state and the federal levels. When you say progressive, that, that will be for our next conversation because if people look at the current definitions in Massachusetts, they are not progressive. They are not even scientifically or medically accurate. And people who haven't looked really need to go look because you would think they were written in Alabama or Louisiana. They, are, they don't even include pregnant people as opposed to... Right. You know, they're not even recognizing transgender pregnancy yeah. capacity. So we are not, we're not there. We're kind of Flintstone-y. Um, we do know there's one thing we do want to celebrate, which is we did hear it was your birthday recently. So we're going to do a, a lightning round of happy birthday, the fastest happy birthday ever. Ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy, happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. And many more. Thank you. Thank yeah, it's you. Thank you Thank for you. taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for being out there every day and for letting us know that um, someone there understands with great depth the intersectionality component of the Roe Act, as well as the public health impacts that we could realize if this is passed um, by July 31st. And we've got like 27 days to keep going. No rest for the weary. I just wanted to say whether we're at, you know, the 99 or the Holy Grail or, you know, Monument Square protesting. Tammy is always the one who shows up and shows up with so much more than I've ever hoped for. Um, I am so grateful you are our rep. Thanks, Tammy. Thanks again so much for being here. Thank you.